masters of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true thought of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live Welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist, writer, and bandwagon Arizona Cardinals fan. That's a football team for you fellow clueless literary nerds. Today we dive into Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. I'm so excited to journey through this poem with you. On the last episode, I discussed some of the 14th century background and the context of when it was written, what was going on in the world, so you can go check that out if you missed it. Welcome to what the poet calls Fit One, F-I-T-T One, the first part of this incredible poem, and we're plunged into Troy. Wait, isn't this poem set in England with King Arthur? I read from Simon Armitage's translation. Once the siege and assault of Troy had ceased, with the city a smoke heap of cinders and ash, the traitor who contrived such betrayal there was tried for his treachery, the truest on earth. This traitor, the poet writes, is Aeneas. Yes, the famous Aeneas of Virgil's Aeneid. The poet goes on to do some serious name-dropping, Post-Troy, Aeneas's ancestors go on to found Rome through Romulus. Someone named Titius builds Tuscany. Langobard constructs Lombardy. And finally, Felix Brutus founds Britain in this mythology of civilization building. What in the world are we doing here? Why would the poet begin this way? Our medieval poet would have heartily agreed with the 20th century Southern Gothic novelist William Faulkner, whom I hated as a youth. The past is never past. Excuse me, dead. It's not even past. It's often misquoted as the past is never past, hence my misquote. As Faulkner's characters are haunted by their past, so Arthur's court, we understand before even meeting him or his round table, is haunted by its legacy and forebears. What is this legacy? Treachery and violence. Hmm, rather ominous. We begin every story, the poet thinks and says, every life even, with echoes of the old behind it. 
My culture likes to forget this. Americans do not wish to remember our haunted past, but our poet reminds us that we are never without it. It matters because it shapes how we see the world, how we make decisions, the substance of our values. Those we will see, Gawain and his friends of Arthur's court, including Arthur himself, frame themselves as the pinnacle of chivalry, constantly striving for perfection as men and as knights. They've been born from betrayal. The poet won't let us forget it. To get uncomfortably theological for a minute, this is another portrayal of the hard reality of original sin, the doctrine that we're born into sin. Medieval people had loads of theories on why this was, including some regrettably bonkers ones, like that sex itself transmitted sin. But I think this poet illustrates it better. We simply can't escape through our own good deeds, our best intentions, or our perfection, the evils of our forebears, whether those are literal or cultural ancestors. I must face, by the grace of God, the evils that my ancestors visited upon the earth, rather than pretend that the damage is over and confined to the distant past. My ancestors not that long ago practiced slavery. My cultural forebears, until very recently, used asbestos and polluted all over the place. I, as a person, face the consequences of those intentional and unintentional sins today. So, the treachery of the past hangs over Gawain in his quest to be the consummate knight. Back to Armitage. And wonder, dread, and war have lingered in this land, where loss and love in turn have held the upper hand. It's Christmas at Camelot. Yes, we finally made it to Camelot from the depths of history. Feasting, jousting, jokes, singing, gifts, joy abound around the round table. Queen Guinevere is radiant. King Arthur is young and strong. The names around the table are already renowned for their acts of daring and chivalry. And among those names is Sir Gawain. The poet launches into a genre that we today are still familiar with, at least if you read and enjoy society columns or People magazine. He spends a lot of time describing the feast, the people who were there, from the clothes worn to the food consumed. He's showing us how wonderfully stylish and up-to-date this court is. Important for an obscure poet of the Northwest, not London, to show how much he knows is cool. The Gowan poet is very fond of this move. We'll see it time and time again in this poem. This is a stylish poem. Um, he has a lot of fun with description. And honestly, it's probably the part of the poem least to our modern taste, but only because we don't have that 14th century sense of what is cool. It is kind of like me describing to a current 13-year-old the aesthetic of MySpace in 2004. Slightly wasted. But into the marvelous, elaborate description of this feast comes something from another world with the impact of a volcanic eruption. The doors of Arthur's great hall open and in trots a massive warhorse 
with an enormous knight astride him. From Armitage's translation. A fearful form appeared, framed in the door, a mountain of a man immeasurably high, a hulk of a human from head to hips. So long and thick in his loins and his limbs, I should genuinely judge him to be half-giant, or a most massive man, the mightiest of mortals. But handsome, too, like any horseman worth his horse, for despite the bulk and brawn of his body, his stomach and waist were slender and sleek. In fact, in all features, he was finely formed, it seemed. Amazement seized their minds. No soul had ever seen a knight of such a kind, entirely emerald green. I have to give you a dose of the Middle English because it's just too wonderful. For wonder of his hue, Manhada, set in his semblant sena, he fared as Freca were father, and overall anchor green. Overall pure green. And moreover, unlike the portrayal in recent uh, movies on this poem, this knight is handsome. He's broad of shoulder and slim of waist, sounding like a massive, graceful professional athlete. In other words, he's not Shrek. He's LeBron James, green-colored. The poet goes into another of his long, descriptive passages that reveal the elegance and the coolness of the Green Knight's raiment. His armor is impeccable. Rich fur spills around the edges of his cloak. Gold details brighten the green fabric. He wears no helmet, meaning he's not literally about to fight someone. Yet in one hand, he holds what Armitage calls the mother of all axes a giant gleaming green weapon. In the other hand, he holds a branch of holly, both appropriately festive for the season and declaring his current lack of interest in killing someone. However, the green knight is rather rude. Who is the governor of this gang? He snarls laughingly into the faces of the startled knights. This question is clearly more meant to offend than to query. Clearly, he showed up at the round table. He's expecting to find King Arthur. The guests sit in silent shock. All he wants, the Green Knight insists, is to play a game. If the knights of Arthur's court are as worthy as he's heard, and he notes, they don't look particularly impressive, then they will happily grant him this game. If a person here present within these premises is big or bold or red-blooded enough to strike me one stroke and be struck in return, I shall give him a gift of this gigantic cleaver, and the axe shall be his to handle how he likes. I'll kneel, bare my neck, and take the first knock. So who has the gall, the gumption, the guts? In twelve months and a day, his game-playing partner will have to meet him for his side of the blow, continues the knight. The hall is dead silent. Wouldn't you be if Green LeBron challenged you to strike him and twinklingly announced he'll strike you in return afterwards? Green and grinning, the knight announces he knew they were all cowards. 
Arthur, young and brash, leaps up in anger and says he's happy to do it, but our Gawain intervenes, speaking for the very first time. It's not fitting for a great king to respond to the challenge. Let one of the lesser men do it instead, gently argues Gawain as he talks Arthur down. What's the big deal? It's just a game, right? Why not let Arthur do it? Or why not laugh the Green Knight out the hall and just refuse to play this psychotic game? Warily and from a distance, of course. But here we begin to touch on something that will run through this poem in a vein to its heart. The question of honor, closely related to something the poet calls courtesy. For medieval knights, courtesy was far more than opening the door for a woman or saying please and thank you. It was part of the chivalric code of honor, part of knowing what was appropriate for a knight to say and do. Your reputation depended on it. From large issues, like when it was appropriate to kill someone, to small issues like conversation at the table. The concepts of honor and courtesy, very culturally contingent concepts, ruled knightly behavior. It's unfitting that Arthur answers the challenge when he has knights lesser in importance to do that work for him. So Gawain steps up. Arthur tells him to hit cleanly, and then Gawain won't have to worry about the following blow, because the Green Knight will be dead. Bold assumption, Arthur, that this giant green man can actually die, but okay. Gawain introduces himself, and he takes the axe. The Green Knight bows, baring his neck. Gawain takes a mighty swing, and... The sharp of the shulk shindered the bones. What a bone-chilling, brilliant line, which is why I quoted it in the Middle English. Sharp is sharp. That word hasn't changed that much. An adjectival noun that describes the axe blade. So it's like calling the axe blade by its description. Shulk is man, an old and now long gone word for man. And shindered is broke. But the cleverness comes not from the mere fact of these alliterative words. Think, imagine the swooshing noise that a blade makes as it whistles through the air. The shear as it encounters wind, then flesh, then bones. We can hear Gawain's deadly stroke in this creepy shh sounds of the very line. It's so creative. But that's the thing. This mammoth swing isn't deadly at all. Back to Armitage. The handsome head tumbles onto the earth and the king's men kick it as it clatters past. Blood gutters brightly against his green gown, yet the man doesn't shudder or stagger or sink, but trudges towards them on those tree trunk legs and rummages around, reaches at their feet and cops hold of his head and hoists it high and strides to the saddle, snatches the bridle, steps into the stirrup and swings in, still grabbing his head by a handful of hair. What a vivid scene. 
the head literally rolls around the floor and all the lords and ladies of the court kick at it. I've always wondered whether that was an arrogant mockery, like, ha, wow, you thought your stupid game was going to work. Or if it was in horror, like kicking out of reflex when you see a mouse um, because this head is bouncing around on the rushes of Camelot. It doesn't matter too much either way because that head does not stay there. The massive tree trunk legs stride forward uncommanded and the headless torso scoops and gropes for the head. He grabs his head by his own hair and swings gracefully back into the saddle. I just adore the creepy cleverness of this poet. For from then on, he refers to the body as he, but the head as it. For that scalp and skull now swung from his fist to the noblest at the table, he turned the face and it opened its eyelids, stared straight ahead. If I wasn't worried about bursting your eardrums as you listen, I'd scream in delighted horror. Happy Halloween, everyone, am I right? The ominous it tells Gawain, speaks to Gawain, that he must get to the Green Chapel to receive his just desserts in this terrifying little game next New Year's morning. The body with the dangling head gallops out of the hall, putting even Washington Irving's headless horseman to shame as the horse's hooves strike the stone of the floor, bring forth fiery sparks, and the head grins. But the spirits of this group won't be dampened on Christmas. After a moment of awkward silence in Camelot, laughter and excited chatter fill the air and people feast and dance until dawn. The poet's voice warns Gawain at this moment in a little aside. You must not forget your appointment nor delay, no matter how overwhelming your dread. I have one major looming question about the Christmas game. Did Gawain have to behead the knight? I can imagine an alternate world where Gawain nicks the green knight's skin with the giant blade. A blow, an answer to this challenge, but without the excessive violence of a complete beheading. After all, the giant knight uses words like blow, barley, strike, stroke. He never actually uses the specific language of beheading. Did Arthur's advice to end it without fear of retribution unduly influence Gawain towards more violence, more bloodshed? Of course, the Green Knight implicitly condones Gawain's choice by deliberately baring his neck. Gawain definitely follows through on these suggestions and controls his fear of the return blow by what he thinks ensures his safety. A strike so final, it makes a return strike impossible. That shearing axe cuts through, shinders the bone and the flesh. Of course, Gawain is wrong about the finality of his beheading. But I would like us to tuck that question away and think about what it might mean 
What does the poet mean here? How lethal should this game be? Is it more like a duel to the death? How Gawain takes it? How Arthur takes it? A grim, grim game in its own right. Or more like 12-year-olds shooting each other with paintball guns? Does the game have imaginative flexibility where that answer, the amount of violence, depends on the ear, the fear, the company, and the values of the person being challenged? I find it brilliant and fascinating that this poet gently links Gawain's growing fear and the court's challenged pride with a parallel, unnecessary increase in violence. However, we can only really see and ask these questions retrospectively. In the moment, Gawain beheads him and we don't have any thought into his process in that beheading. He just goes for it. He does it. Yet, I think by leaving this space in intention, the Gawain poet means us to ask questions like these. He's a playful poet, one who asks his reader to remember and to question. We, the readers, play our own game of interpretation, and we will continue to do so. That's the end of Fit One. I can't wait to share more with you next week as we read Fit Two. Gowan begins his big adventure. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, I'd really appreciate your rating and podcast subscriptions or following me on Twitter or Instagram at Old Books with Grace for more fun bookish things. You can also check out the text of this podcast at oldbookswithgrace.com if you'd like to see some of the quotes with your own eyes. I'm a very visual person myself, so I know that's what I would need to do to really get the full picture. Coming up, some more super medieval fashion, a journey into the wild with our hero Gawain, some incredible lines on nature and on uh, this adventurous spirit, and more. Of course, we'll talk about all those things, but we're also going to think hard and seriously about how our lives embody our values or how they don't, and how we handle that conflict. Until next time, friends, thank you for listening. The prayer you heard at the beginning of this episode is from the Aquinas Prayer Book by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated and edited by Robert Anderson and Johann Moser, published by the Sophia Institute Press.